chapter 3, and uh, let me just ask the Lord to teach us and guide us this morning. Lord God, for this morning, thank you. I thank you for each person that's here. Uh, you've given the strength to be here today. And Lord, we know that as people come in every week to this theater, they aren't just bringing themselves in, but also the things that are on their minds and hearts, uh, work and money and marriage and loss and pressure and uh, joy or grieving and all these things, God. And we ask, Lord, knowing that you know all these things, that you would guide and lead and instruct us this morning, that your presence would be with us and that you would receive the glory from this fellowship today and that you would do the, the thing that is only possible by your hand, and that is that you would change us. And if that means um, encouragement or correction, whatever you see fit, God, we invite you to do as we open your word this morning. And we pray these things expectantly in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 3, and we've been really looking at answering the question, who is this Jesus? And the first three chapters are already given us answers from Mark's gospel. And we've come to learn that Jesus Christ is this lover of people, and that he has authority like no one has ever seen, and a power, and he teaches in a way that no one's ever heard. And the things he's doing, the people are actually saying it loud, like nothing like this has ever been done in our midst. Incredible work of the Lord, so already in, the, in our study. Some true answers we're finding. We've seen that he's called people to follow him and to take on uh, his character, his purpose and personality for the sake of the world around them. It's truly been amazing. And this morning what we're going to see is a continuation of that ministry, but also some details about who he follows, or who he's called to follow him, and what he's asking them to do. And really what we're going to find out is he's asking them to do what they can't do on their own. He's asking them to do the impossible. And this week I was spending some time thinking about it and I was looking at some different resources. I found this one study, a case study on ordinary people doing the impossible. It's interesting because we have to define the word impossible, but here are some of the ideas of real people. I'll spare their names for you, but things that the studies decided that it was ordinary people doing impossible things. And some good ideas. I'm not sure if they're impossible because they happened. But you decide. One person had an idea of building a high school for um, molding female achievers in Kenya with a focus on life skills. That's a good thing, a noble thing. One person was desiring to and has accomplished inspiring 100,000 people to become organ donors. That's cool. One person's idea that they've accomplished was ditching corporate finance to promote adventure and launch a mountain biking tour company. Impossible? I don't know. I'm more of an indoor guy, so I'm not really motivated by it. I kind of like the indoors and reclining. Pretty good at reclining. Um, one person had uh, an achieved building a platform to teach teen moms the tools to create genuine success. I mean, that's noble. I wonder what, I'd love to know what they define success as. Huh? One person in the same study, a study of ordinary people doing the impossible, was a recovering lawyer helping other miserable lawyers find a more meaningful career. <laughs> Jeez, it's been rough for that person. Terrible. I feel bad for the person that achieved the impossible. The impossible. Goodness. A whole bunch of miserable people hanging out together. Another one was someone that achieved and accomplished hiking, hitchhiking 22,000 miles to help introverts find confidence and come alive. Where did they go? To the moon? 22,000 miles of this. Hmm. The last one I'll share with you, I actually kind of 
half agree that it truly is an impossible thing. This might be supernatural. Someone ate four 32-ounce bowls of mayonnaise in eight minutes. Mayonnaise um, is my kryptonite, and I've shared this with the church. I find it reprehensible, deplorable. I couldn't do one bite of it. In eight minutes, there you go, people eating lots of stuff. So we have an idea, a notion in our world that people are doing impossible things, but if they've done them, are they impossible then? The answer would be no. We have people in our midst that achieve amazing things in education and fitness and all these things, friends that I have that do things that I know are impossible for me, impossible for me, but they've made possible. And what we see in scripture actually is God calling people to, to do the truly impossible. And that's what we're going to find this morning. And when we look at the Bible, we look at the life of Christ, and we see what, he's done, what he does, we think, man, that's amazing. That's why we worship him, because he does what we can't do. But interestingly enough, if you look through all scripture, there's people that are doing amazing, impossible things. And we look at them, we think to ourselves, that person is a superhero of the faith. So my wonder as we look into our text this morning is, is it possible? Do you think there's any chance that God can do the impossible through you or me? Is it possible that the scriptures, in a sense, through our lives are still being written? Like someone could look back in the history of our lives and see that God did the impossible through someone like you or me. So let's look at Mark chapter 3, shall we? You can go ahead and bring your Bibles every week. If you don't own one, we can give you one because we open them every week. Mark chapter 3, we're just continuing the study. We've just been going verse to verse. Look at verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. And when they heard all that he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. I'd imagine so. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. And people debate about why he did that. And this is actually something we've already seen before. It's actually the same description of the kind of ministry that Jesus has been engaging in over and over and over again. And now there's crowds following him. And now there's disciples he's called to himself that we've seen so far in these first three chapters. And Mark is just helping us understand that it's every day, all day, more and more and more. People wanting access to the authority and power of Jesus. Incredible. Some people believe that Mark placed that thought right here to bridge to the next one to show why Jesus would be interested in bringing others into the ministry that he has in seeking and saving the lost. So we're going to focus on these next sections here. Look at verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12, and the next phrase here is in some manuscripts, but not in all, but the idea is implicit in all of them, designating them apostles that they might be with him and that they might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Hmm. Now in Luke chapter 6 verse 12 in this parallel this passage we see that Jesus right before calling the 12 from amongst the disciples who are amongst the crowd that Jesus spent the evening in prayer praying and talking to his father about the 12 calling the apostles from the disciples who are from the crowds following Jesus. So they're called disciples, these 12 are, and now they're also called apostles. Disciples, um, that means learners, like pupils, student, follower. An apostle actually means like messenger, uh, sent one, or official representative. 
In Scripture, we actually only see a handful of people given this title, apostle, or to the apostleships. And in Ephesians chapter 4, the Scriptures tell us that it was Jesus who decided to give the church, the church universal, some apostles, some evangelists, um, some prophets, some pastors and teachers to equip the body for works of service and to build the body up. That continues on today, we see. It's happening actually right now. But the question we can ask as good Bible students, we see what Jesus did, but why did he do what he did? And the text tells us, for what reason did Jesus call these guys? Look at verse 14. And keeping in mind the idea of God calling people to do the impossible. Verse 14 again. And he appointed 12, designating them apostles, that they might be with him and that, that he might send them out to preach. And then we see in verse 15, and to cast out evil spirits. So two reasons why Jesus actually called these folks from amongst the folks unto himself. Number one, if you're a note taker, you can write this down. Why did Jesus call the apostles to himself? And you can see if there's any parallel to our lives today in 2016. Number one, so that they would, the text says, um, be with him. You should underline that, to, to be with him. And what is conveyed in this idea of being with him is that you would actually like be trained and follow along. Now, can you imagine this? Jesus Christ having crowds and crowds around him, and he's going to pick 12, and who would he pick? Who would you pick? Do you remember the elementary school days when you're picking kickball teams or dodgeball teams? Who do you pick? The awesome kids, right? The kid with the big foot, the girl that never drops a catch, or the kid that can never be, you know, hit with a ball somehow. They exist, like the invisible kid. He can't get hit. Who does Jesus choose? He chooses these guys, and why did he choose them? Number one, he chose them to be with him, to be trained as apostles. Think about your life. How did you learn to do what you do? Anyone ever been an apprentice before? Following? Anyone work on cars? Who taught, who taught you how to do that? I remember the different jobs I've had in my life. I worked in an onion factory. I've shared this with you before, a nail factory. In each place, I had to receive some training. It was terrible. But they knew what they were doing. One of the most difficult jobs I had for me related to my anxiety was driving those huge trucks that get um, like dirt dumped into them and the trucks, they swivel like this, the back ends do. They're supposed to go back this way to empty the dirt out but they can also fall this way. And I had to drive one of those on major roads that was filled and I had to learn how to do it. And I'm more of a, like, a passenger seat kind of guy than a driving kind of guy because I like to talk and look around, sleep. I had to be trained how to do that. That was difficult for me. Just lines of people back behind me honking. So just take it easy on the construction people, people. How did you learn to do what you did? It's the same for these guys. They learned to do what they're doing by following Jesus, and Jesus invited them. Can you imagine what they heard and saw? The Apostle John says that if they were to write down everything that Jesus said and did, it would fill all the pages of all the books in all the world. We've already seen what he's done up to this point of just reaching out and connecting people, and his teaching is incredible, and they're invited to be with him. And I was wondering this week, is it possible, how can we be with Jesus today? We can't, like, see him, we can't like see him or, or touch him, and that's hard for some of us. We think that faith is dumb then, or blind is the idea, and it's not. There is an actual answer to the question, how can we actually, like the apostles, um, be with Jesus? And let me just give you some answers that you probably already know in your minds, but I don't know if you put into your life. And sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. And the first one is this, getting to know Jesus through the study of his word. That's what we do every week together. But what about you doing that by yourself or the few other folks that you love? Getting to know him through taking in God's word. It's not reading God's word now to make him happy with you or like taking two vitamins every day. 
The next is speaking with him, listening, and then speaking. That's prayer is the idea. Some people pray so they can use God like a genie. I remember when I used to have big tests coming up, and I used to just pray like crazy. I didn't study it all. I mean, forget that. I had things to do. But God, come through for me now. And you know what? He didn't. He was just. We get to know Jesus by studying God's word and speaking with him. And then also another way that we get to know the character of Christ and his actual trustworthiness is when we step out to do and live as Jesus did. This is called discipleship, and it's not really a program, okay? Discipleship's not a program, but it's actually a relationship to be nurtured. I remember I was a Christian school teacher in a middle school through high school 16 years ago, and I used to put the same question on every quiz test and final exam for these seventh and eighth grade students. And the fill in the blank question was, Christianity is about a relationship, not rules or religion. Fill in the blank every time, and even toward the last exam, people still got it wrong, you know. Terrible teacher, I guess. That's what it's about. Discipleship is a relationship to, to be nurtured. It's a relationship by faith because we don't have, we don't see Christ as the apostles were privileged to do, but they actually didn't know the end like we know. So we're actually privileged to follow Christ in our day, even though we don't see him, but because we know the end to come. But it's a relationship that needs to be nurtured and learned and practiced. You're invited. As it relates to being with Jesus, I wondered and thought I'd ask you, these folks were actually taught by Jesus, but who's teaching you? Who do you have in your life that's just a little farther down the road in Christ that you can be with, that you're learning from? Do you have someone? Uh, who are you bringing along? That's the idea, is that discipleship is supposed to continue to happen, happen today, that, that we're being with Christ. Who is that for you? I remember one time, I can't remember if it was Pastor Scott or not, but asked the church a question, who here has been discipled? The next question was inverted. Who here has never been discipled? And they, there was lots of hands, which means there's still plenty of work to do and probably people you need to meet with. For me and my family, I mean, I have my wife and I have five children, those people there already that I'm supposed to engage. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Who is it for you? For these 12, they had, they had Jesus in the flesh. And I think Christ's invitation to be with him actually stands today because he says it's recorded in the word that whoever wants to follow him, you know, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow him, you're, you're free to do that. And that's one part then. What was, what was he calling them to do, to be apostles, and why? Number one, to be with him. Look at verse 14 again for the second part. Taking in God's word here. He appointed 12, designating them apostles, that they might be with him and that they that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. The first part is that, that they would be with him. The second part is that he would send them. So to be with him and to not be with him. So he would send them and send them to do what? The text tells us to preach and to cast out demons. So being sent to preach, think about this. You're being brought to follow him, to imitate him, to see him, and then to be sent by him to do the things that he does. Do you think that'd be intimidating? I remember trying to learn how to play guitar here with the kind of folks that we have here. Uh, then they'd say, now you play. No, no, I don't play. You play. Again, I like it. It's embarrassing. And for those of us that struggle with insecurity and shame and all those things, man, we don't want to be exposed as not having what it, you know, not, not having what it takes. So Jesus is bringing them to be with him, and then he's going to send them to do the things that he's done in the first three chapters. Incredible. Humbling, I'm sure. But these apostles actually need something from Jesus so as to do the things that he's calling them to do. They, they need something from him. Look at verse 15 again. Verse 15. 
and to have authority. So to send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These disciples were actually needed to be given an authority, and uh, this word is sometimes rendered as power, so I'll use them interchangeably today. They were given authority, the power to cast out demons, and in Matthew chapter 10, which is a parallel account to this, they were also given the authority over sickness and disease. So that means they have the authority now in Jesus' name to preach, and the thing that accompanies that preaching, that teaching, is the power over the spiritual and the physical. That was not from themselves. Wow. Wow. The power then confirms the message. Jesus now did miracles not to prove anything because he's pretty secure. I should say that more. He's totally secure. So he didn't do miracles so that people might believe. He did miracles because that's what he does, and then people believed. Some did, but some didn't. And for the apostles, their miraculous works by this power and authority actually confirmed the message and so that people might believe the message because, man, they seem like Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul writes about apostleship that signs and wonders confirms the preaching. So they're actually going to be then tasked to do the impossible. The impossible, to have power over these things, to preach in such a way that life change occurred. That is impossible. You can guilt, you can pressure, but you can't torque a heart. Science allows us to do amazing things that probably would have been perceived as a miracle then, but we know that science made it possible. The kinds of stuff that the apostles were sent to do are the impossible. When have you been asked to do the impossible? I think of a couple examples that have come to my mind. I remember when our oldest was born, Mia, uh, this was 12 years ago, May, uh, she wasn't really interested in arriving to this world, and so the doctors wanted to induce labor, and so they did. And then after inducing, uh, giving Amanda, my wife, the medicine to do that, then they found out that Mia was breech. So they decided that they had to do an emergency cesarean, which they did. There's some complications from that when uh, Mia arrived. And so the next morning from 8 a.m., to whenever Amanda was not with me in the room and me, it was just me and me in the room and Amanda was gone and nobody was telling me any updates. So if you're a professional warrior like I am, and I'm pretty sure I'm better than you, I've been doing it a long time, my mind had decided a couple things. One, I am now gonna be by myself forever and two, I don't know what to do right now. I don't know what to do right now and I don't know, I don't know what I'm ever gonna know what to do. Mia had her legs like were just like bouncing like this because she was breached. They were just like this for such a long time that I, I kept trying to push her legs down and she'd cry and I thought I was breaking her. And the task of being a dad in that moment, to me, I had no equipping and no training. I thought it was impossible. When have you been given something that you have thought is an impossible task from the Lord? Because since Mia existed, the task of being a dad was a task given to me. The apostles um, could not do as Christ intends for them, the impossible, unless they are given the authority or power to do so, verse 15 tells us to, and given authority to do so. And so this is a biblical principle for us to remember. And if you're a note taker, I want you to write it down and I want you to think about it for a while. I want you to talk to the Lord about it, okay? Here it is and you can test it. Always test what your preachers are saying against the scriptures. And here's the principle. You ready? What God intends, he empowers. What God intends, he empowers. 
So God intended for, intended for Christ to call these 12 from amongst the disciples, from amongst the crowd, and to send them with authority. So there is an intention there, and then there was an empowering to do what he's called them to do. Let's test it against the scripture. Who are some examples of God empowering those that lean into him for what he intends? Remember, the first part is being with him, then being sent. To be with him and to be sent with this power to do what God has called him to do. Think throughout the scriptures. I'm sure if you've studied God's word and you remember even growing up in church, the stories you remember are the stories of the impossible. Do you remember the story of Sarah? I believe that was Abram's wife who was told in her old age and in her barren life that she was going to have a child. Is that was laughable to her. She laughed at God. Do you relate? Um, I have a question to ask you, a Bible question. Who enabled Sarah to have a child? Oh, God. I'll tell you. You don't have to be so stuffy. We can talk. We're going to keep doing this. Okay. Here's another example. Do you remember the story? You probably heard of this guy named Moses who actually like abandoned um, where he was from in distress and shame, anxiety, fear. And then he has this incredible, unique encounter with God in this engaging of, uh, of a burning bush that God was speaking through. Have you heard this story before? And then God tells Moses, this guy who was of God's people but didn't really identify with them for at one point and was from Egypt really and was this prince, I guess, and ran away, cartoons tell me. And... God calls him to go back, confront Pharaoh with some heavy things, and to be a leader and a voice for God to God's people. Moses immediately responds with the idea of insecurity and never thought that people would follow and he can't speak very well. Who enabled Moses to do what God called him to do? Hmm. Last week, uh, well, I'll share this story too. It just came, another one came to my mind from the first service. Um, do you remember the story, you ever heard the story before about God calling his people to um, approach a city that was an enemy to the Lord? And they were heavily fortified by these walls. The name of the city was Jericho. And God gave his people this battle plan that they would like march around it and yell real loud. A terrible plan. My temperament is that I would say in my mind, but never out loud, like that's stupid. And in so many days, and on the last day, they do this so many times, walking around the walls, and they shout, and the walls fall down, and God's people take the city. <laughs> the question to ask ourselves, loved ones, is um, who enabled God's people to do the thing he asked them to do? Yeah. Last week, Scott preached a message, a wonderful message about Christ and his limitless love, and Jesus is really teaching to the religious elite and witnesses by using a man as an example and this man was either born with or came, grew to have an arm that was, as the scriptures describe it, a withered hand. It sounds kind of rough, you know. I, don't, I can only imagine. I don't know if it's from birth or all time. But then Jesus tells this man to stand before all people and to extend his hand. Now, Jesus would know that this guy isn't able. <laughs> and wouldn't this be embarrassing or shame-filled? I mean, would this guy be perceived as someone that's far from God because clearly he's been judged by God? And so Jesus then tells this man to do the thing he wishes he could always do. Who enabled the man to extend his hand? Hmm. 
See, these callings are seemingly impossible, but made possible by the power of the Lord. And it doesn't stop then with just famous folks of Scripture. Something foundational can be learned by Christ um, praying for, calling, training, and empowering the apostles. Something can be learned. There's a principle here. And that it's for those of us that are in Christ, we can trust God to also empower us to do whatever he's intended for us to do. If not, then he'd be a bully. And if we could do things without him, then we wouldn't need Christ. So while God's commands are not burdensome, let's just think together, loved ones. What are some general commands in scripture for Christians today? General, for everybody. We have some that come to mind, don't we? Do you have some right now that come to your mind? Do not be afraid is the number one command in scripture. That's a tough one for those of us that are quick to be afraid. Do not worry is a common one from Jesus, which flies in the face of some of our disposition. Those are impossible. They seem impossible. How about this one? Um, love your enemies or um, forgive as you've been forgiven. That, I mean, if you don't have Jesus, that's hard. I mean, we really hurt each other. What are some general ones that come to your mind that are to all believers? Show mercy. See, these are all truly impossible in our own effort. It's very different. These are very different, aren't they, than um, a noble effort like helping people become insecure by hiking 22,000 miles. Different. Like God-sized tasks, but what God intends, he empowers. So let's be a little more personal here. What is something specific you know God has been calling you to do that you know reflects, and you know it's him because it reflects like his character, um, his style, his approach, his love for people, um, some kind of thing that's calling you to like step out by faith. What's that thing? Do you have it? I wonder if someone has their thing, their thing. And you know it's him because you know it's been working every while. You know it's like it's, it's not your conscience. It's come from outside of you, and it's like in your heart that you know that you're supposed to do this. And it really reflects like a trust in him, and it reflects his love or his grace or his peace or his mercy or his gentleness. That's why you know it's him because you'd never pick it. Has he been calling you like to um, lead courageously like you never have? Like to get over yourself to get over your insecurities and to step out and lead like humbly and with service? Has he been calling you, is your thing maybe, just pushing some buttons here, but I'm just wondering, is your thing, um, has he been calling you like to forgive that awful offense? And you think, to God, I can't do that because then they'll be let off the hook. No, that's not true because Christ paid for it. Has he been calling you like maybe to give generously toward the point of like true sacrifice? Like you've never done it before and you're not sure how you're going to overcome that kind of giving, but he's like giving you like a specific thing in mind to give toward or a specific number or something, but you've never done it. And it's too hard because you find your security in your money. What's the thing that God's been calling you to do? The impossible thing to serve in a way that scares you because you think you don't have what it takes to come through? Or is it is your thing to open your home to a child that doesn't have one? but you're not sure if you've got room in your home or your heart or your wallet for another child, even though you feel bad that the child doesn't have a home? What is it? Something that's like brings glory and honor to God. 
Maybe your thing is you've known for a while that you have a person that you're crazy about that you love, a family member or a friend or a coworker or something, and all you want them to know is Christ as you know Christ. And you don't know everything, but you know that Jesus is your Savior, and you want that person to know Christ as you know Christ, but you've been too scared because they're so smart, or you don't want them to think that you're judging them, which you're not because you're trying to love them, but you've never shared because you don't want to lose them. But you are going to lose them. They're already lost. And he's even calling you and saying, it's time, it's time to share. Just share your story of how I changed your life. Just share. See, God continually calls you and I to do things where everyone else would know that it was God's work in and through us. Not us, not just us. See, these are the kind of things that you know that if God wasn't with you, you'd never have the courage or ability to do it. The things that really require like um, being with him, leaning on his capable arms, leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting. Not just to go to heaven, but to, like, to get through today. <laughs> this life isn't simply about arriving to the pearly gates, but about living for his glory now. And that happens when we live by faith and then do as he's plainly told us to do. It's the faith that pleases him and the faith then drives us to the obedience. Because you can do right living without faith and you're just a moralist then. It means nothing. It's not for the glory of God. Let me ask this then. Has, has anyone ever responded to God with this impossible thing? You know what your thing is, but your thought in your mind is this. Uh, I cannot do that. <laughs> I'm not able. I could never. Well, then you're not alone. And I'd say you're half right. In and of yourself, the things that God calls us to, his things are impossible. But what is impossible with man is possible with God, the scriptures tell us. For the 12 apostles, they were called and were sent to preach, heal, and cast out demons and all humanly impossible things as far as it relates to like spiritual results, real results. People can preach all they want and prognosticate and, and give prophecies and people can do attempts at miracles or their version of miracles, but if it's n not real, lasting, spiritual, godly life change without the power of God. And these apostles, they're going to go minister as Christ did. And in time, Jesus will commission them to go into all the world and preach the gospel to make more disciples who will make disciples. And God empowered them to do exactly what he intended them to do. And that same commission stands for you and I today. You're invited. And the same Holy Spirit who empowered them in time empowers you. Let's look at these guys. Who are the kind of people that Jesus would call? I mean, who would you pick? So you're gonna call people from amongst the crowd. You're gonna pick who would you elect to represent you? Hmm? Is it close to home? Who would you pick to represent your values in the world around you? Let's look at who Jesus calls. Verse 16. These were the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name uh, Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Elphias, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So here we have the list of who Christ called, appointed, empowered. And this list exists um, in four different places in Scripture. You'll see that if you read through the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts. 
And actually, um, some people like to pick on the fact that these lists look different, and they do. It's not different lists in the sense different people. It's actually the same people, but some of the lists go by the nicknames of the guys, and some go by their given name, okay? That's important to know as a Bible student when people want to throw to you that there's inconsistencies in the Bible, okay? It's actually the same list, but sometimes the, the guys go by their nicknames, so let's just consider the list together. We're looking at the kind of people that Jesus called to follow him, to be with him, that he's going to send out with power to do the impossible things. And here, of all the people he could pick, here's who he picked. Number one, you probably heard this name before, Peter. His given name was Simon. He was a fisherman, and Jesus gives him the nickname Peter, which means um, rock. Some people say like it means little pebble. He's impulsive, brash, out of control, fearful. Anyone relate? And in time, he emerges as the leader and a prominent preacher. And I'll spare you from telling you of what history tells us about the end of each one, but these people preach to the end, to their end. Next, we have James and John. These are fishermen along, uh, they're fishermen along with their father, Zebedee. And Jesus gave them this nickname, an Aramaic term that's translated into Greek in our text here in English now, meaning sons of thunder. It could be rendered as um, like hotheads. Some people think it means like stubborn mules. And these guys are actually seen in Luke chapter 9 after been given this power and trying to engage different people with the message of the kingdom, a message of repentance. In Luke chapter 9, people aren't responding so well, so James and John say to Jesus, hey, Jesus, should we use our power to call fire down on these people? Huh? Don't you? If everyone doesn't agree with me, just watch out for the fire. Jesus rebukes them. It's anger problems. Anyone relate? Next is Andrew, which we don't know too much about. He's Peter's brother, so he's a fisherman we can believe. And uh, he's the one that brought Peter to Jesus, which I think is pretty cool. Not much is known about Philip. So you're picking people that no one knows Jesus. How influential can they be? This past week I was looking at Time's 100 Most Influential People. What a gamut. They're not ranked, but they just decided that these are the most 100 most influential. They also have an article about most 100 influential all time. Influences needs to be defined as well. Philip may have been a Hellenized Jew, and so identifying with Christ as such um, may have given other people some hope. Bartholomew, uh, we don't know too much about him either. Bar means son of, uh, Tholomai, so son of his dad, of course, like every man is. His full name and the other is Nathaniel Bartholomew. Nathaniel means um, God has given, so God has given a son. Matthew, who we studied before, Matthew's formal name, his given name was Levi. He was a tax collector, and as we remember from our study a couple of weeks ago, um, tax collectors are despised, they're considered traitors to their own people. And so Jesus calls one of them to follow him. Would you? Next is Thomas. Uh, he was called Didymus, which means twin. So rather than called the name, you just called that he was a twin. He's the one later in time that we read that was the doubter. Do you remember that? He would not believe that Christ arose unless he saw and touched for himself. And he did, and he did believe. And then Jesus says, you believe because you've seen, but blessed are they believe without ever seeing. That would mean you and me. Thomas is this doubter. Anybody relate? James, the son of Elpheus, is next. His mother is named Mary, and she's a follower of Jesus in Mark chapter 16, verse 20. There he's called James, um, James the Less, he also is known as. And some people believe, believe that means he's small. Others believe because he's lesser than the other James. Either way, that stinks, doesn't it? 
Anybody here feel small or struggle with being compared to other people? Or comparing yourself to other people? Thaddeus, his given name is Judas, son of James. Judas was a, Judas was a common name at the time, a good name. He's also known as uh, Labius, and I read that that name means like a man, of, a man of heart, but Thaddeus, some people believe, is slang for mama's boy. Labius can mean like heart child. Any mama's boys here? If your mom was here, she'd raise your hand, but you're like too ashamed, I bet. Yeah. I can really Next is Simon the Zealot. Zealots were political uh, revolutionaries. They were actually just quite anti-Rome. They wanted to see big change happen where they were, and they wanted to help usher in that change by any means necessary, including violence. If you grew up in the local church like I did in the 70s and 80s, you would have recognized him on the flannel graph as the guy that had a sword. What boring times I had growing up. We had no video. I don't know how we survived. Hmm. A lot of times zealots were known as people that were hotheads and uh, people that thought that the politics were the way to see the work of God on greatest display. Anybody here relate? Someone has to say yes, because I see your Facebook post, man. Worried? Worried about this kingdom? Jesus chooses this guy, okay. And last is Judas Iscariot, who the text tells us betrayed Christ. Jesus is recorded in Matthew concerning Judas saying that the Son of Man, that's himself, will go just as is written about him. So Jesus knows that all these things are coming together. And this statement is so packed with this view of God's sovereignty and also then man's responsibility in their choices. Uh, it's a marvel. Jesus says about him, but woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. In John 17, 12, Jesus prays concerning his disciples. Oh, sorry. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe. He's talking to his father in the garden before he's betrayed. And I kept them safe by the name that you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. See, Judas is proof as there are others. All these guys here, we have represented amongst ourselves or we ourselves are like them in a sense. And Judas has proved that it's possible to be near Jesus, even to do good things from time to time, and to not be committed to Christ or possess true faith. And I hope to God that no one here can relate. So are these guys the most spiritual, talented, classiest of all people? <laughs> are these the people that you'd pick to represent you, to represent your style and your mission for the world, these are the ones that Christ picked. They're common. They were prone to sin, made wrong judgments, had bad attitudes, lapses of faith. At one time, they lacked understanding and power, but by God's grace and mercy through Jesus Christ, they were changed. And God used these average guys to do the impossible, to do amazing things. What's God been asking you to do? What's the impossible thing that reflects his character and his mission that he's been asking you specifically to do and all that's waiting for you to do is to uh, take a step? 
just a few years later from this point where Christ calls them unto himself as apostles, it is said of them in Acts chapter 17, verse 6, by some really angry people that these guys are turning the world upside down. And what is meant by that is that they were turning their world upside down as people continue to come into the faith and surrender their lives to the grace and love of Jesus Christ. People don't know what to do with them. See, they should be on the list of ordinary people that did truly impossible things because they were empowered by God to do the very things he planned for them to do, which is actually true for you and I. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 tells us that you are God's workmanship, poem is the word, work of art, to do good works, which God prepared from the beginning of time for you to do. And he would be a bully if he had good works for you to do, but wouldn't empower you to do it, so he does. And it would be wrong if you could just do the impossible things without him because there would be no need of Christ. And so it comes together perfectly. His demands of you, his intent for you, will be perfectly met by his power so that you can pull off the things that he's planned for you to do. Isn't it incredible? So what's the problem? Simon, Peter, James, John, when they were called, they, their responsibility was to Respond. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 tells us concerning the apostles that they are the foundation of the church with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. Jesus says of them in Luke chapter 22 that they will sit in the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And their ministry is still going on today. Loved ones, it's still going on today through those who believed as a result of their message and then pass on to others who pass on to others who to eventually today, to who we have here today that identifies with Christ. And what is their message? And each week we want to make sure that we're faithful to share what that message is. What is the message ultimately of the apostles and ultimately of all the disciples that would come after them? And it's simply this, that God so loved people, so loved the world, the people of the world, that he gave his only son so that whoever would believe in him, his death, life, death, resurrection, for their sake, would not have to be eternally separated from God for all time, which is a just judgment for our sins against an eternal God, but would have everlasting life, which actually begins now. Life, true life, kingdom life, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, impossible things to conjure up ourselves, and then forevermore into the kingdom. And that goes forever and ever and ever. And you're invited. And that's the message. And it's a message that turns the world upside down. It's an impossible, amazing, wonderful story. True Christians are a part of their legacy as we live for Christ and minister to others. Common, average, clumsy, imperfect, flawed people, me, you, are invited to follow Jesus and are called to make the gospel known. But in order for us to be effective, we have to be with Christ, empowered by the Lord. That's what we see in the verse 14 and 15, to be with him and then to be sent by him. We participate in his ministry by depending on his strength. And that happens as we trust in him and then step in obedience. And at that point, at that step, beloved, I'll tell you this, what will happen is that you'll realize that his presence is with you and will allow you the privilege to not worry about what's gonna happen because you know you got him. That's peace. What God intends for you to do, the impossible by your ability, he empowers every time. And I know it's difficult. I know that fear and doubt will creep in because it happens to me over and over again. So here are some ideas. Here are some final thoughts, just some pastoral thoughts for me to you, for you to consider when you know God's calling you to something specific to do that's well beyond your capacity and capability, but completely 
in his. So when you know what you ought to do, here's some ideas. Number one, I, I challenge you, I encourage you to talk to him about it. We so often run to other friends. What should I do? What should I do? I think God's telling me to do this. Why not talk to him about it? Talk to him about what he's calling you to do. One, two, wait then for a moment for any specific instructions and promptings. If there's anything more to do about the thing he's calling you to do. Wait for a second, a moment. Then the jump to the next one is really to be proactive then in what he's called you to do, all the while asking him to show up. So sometimes what we think is that when we go to do this thing that we're alone, that's the lie. That's a lie. You're not alone. Christ is with you. Through the power of the Holy Spirit is with you. In fact, he tells his disciples at one point, it's a verse that really like transformed me. He tells his disciples, and I've shared this with you several times, do not be surprised on my account that you brought before princes and governors and you'll be flogged in my name. What? That's a promise? Anyway, don't be afraid of what to say or how to say it because it won't be you speaking but the spirit of my father speaking through you. If we want to be witnesses sent by him because we're with him, then the promise carries over, I believe today to 2016, that he'll tell you what to say and how to say it if we desire to be his witnesses. So be proactive what he's called you to do, all the while asking him to show up. And last, just a practical idea for you to do is just work on praise and worship a little bit here. Praise him for his promised presence with you and that all that he's done to bring you up to the point that you would even hear him. Hmm? You can trust him, loved ones. Dearest fellowship, what I say is that what he intends for us to do to be about, he'll empower us to accomplish as we avail ourselves to him. Okay? I'm looking forward to hearing what your thing was. I'm looking forward to the glory God will get from your obedience. What would it be like if Southbridge were completely a people that lived like in him, by him, and sent as he desires and empowered to do the things he's called us to do, it'd be incredible. And we're invited. You're invited. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you so much for this morning again. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the privilege of sharing your word and thank you for allowing us to know you through your son, Jesus Christ, and for the privilege of having Jesus as our Savior. God, I ask for the specific things you're asking these folks to do, Lord regarding work or marriage, parenting, money, sharing the gospel, whatever it is, God, I pray, God, that you would grow them in their faith and trust in you, that everything can be accomplished that you've tasked us to do because you will empower us to do what you've told us to do every time we trust in you. We give ourselves to you. We give this church to you, God. And we ask, Lord God, that as you're gentle with us and patient with us, that you continue to be so, so that we may persevere and overcome the things that hold us back from following you so well, and that we might live for your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.